Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday! The Tuesday! So pumped to be recording. Also, David, I'm just like kind of laughing at you because without <laughs> saying anything, you just turned on your Garmin to record your heart rate during this podcast recording. You've never done that before. I want to get an accurate heart rate file that describes just how stoked I get on this podcast so people know where I'm coming from. I feel like I probably burn like a whole pizza during this recording. So this just justifies me eating an extra pizza, perhaps. It justifies big wet food energy right there. <laughs> Actually, I saw that from a listener. I was like, we haven't talked about big wet food energy in a long time. It's yeah. time to bring it back. Or big dump truck energy. I got an email from someone that described they raced right in the middle of their the luteal phase of their menstrual cycle. And they're like, I channeled big dump truck energy and had the best race of my life. So you're you're motivating people. You were actually dealing with uh, some dump truck situations last week, right? Oh, hot damn. Yeah. I felt like a big dump truck energy last week. Yeah. And I was out there running and I was just like, beep, beep. I got this coming through. It is so hard to be a woman. I, I just want to take a little step back because like, I we don't really have to do Sometimes I'll feel a little bit different or weird or wake up a little bit sadder or whatever, but you have to have like an existential crisis every month. That's just kind of like nature. That's How is true. That all that's true. It's funny because like I study this, I coach yeah. athletes that go through the menstrual cycle, yet every PMS phase, I have this existential crisis <laughs> and I'm like judging myself. I'm thinking about body image, thinking about all these different things. And I tell myself, I'm like, I'm not going to judge myself this month. And then I do. Yeah. Yeah. So like women and, and women, female athletes have to deal with these incredible incredibly complicated cycles that vary and vary over time, vary amongst people. Men, all we have to worry about is making sure we start our watch to record our heart rate during our podcast. Because every, <laughs> white, every white man has a podcast. So it, it basically applies across the board. Uh, but it's true though. I mean, I actually, I think the thing about like having these existential crises is that like when you return from that, yeah. I just have this like overwhelming sense of gratitude for being like, for feeling normal. <laughs> and it's awesome. And I think that happened to us today. So we don't usually like on Tuesdays, we usually run right out the door yeah. from the house. And it's just kind of like our pre-podcast recording run. And we traveled to run today. We went to Mount Sanitas in Boulder. We ran Lion's Lair, which is like just this like perfect flowy fun trail. And we saw so many podcast listeners out there. I felt good. I yeah. no longer had big dump track energy, but I was channeling those like internal beep beeps. <laughs> it was so fun. You had beep beeps without the like underlying uh, issues that come with that. Yeah, it was so cool to see so many people that were listening out there. In fact, we saw one person that said, I'm listening to your podcast right now, which is extremely fun and exciting for us. Um, also, Lions Lair, Trail and Boulder. If you come to Boulder at any point in your life, make sure you run it. It's this flowy single track that has tons of switchbacks. And what I was thinking of today while running behind Megan and trying to, like I was desperately trying not to lose her wheel um, and get dropped on the downhill. What I was thinking about is I just started watching Squid Game. And you started watching Squid Game. We did not start watching it together oh, yes. because I was like, I might not be able to sleep at night if I watch Squid Game. Yeah, no spoilers, obviously, because I um, barely uh, able to even keep my own wits when I'm watching it. Um, but I've been watching it while I do my treadmill doubles. And so uh, the very first game they play in Squid Game, if you don't know, it's a game that involves killing people, um, is red light, green light, where if you move during red light, you're getting uh, shot. And so what I was thinking about while running the trail behind Megan is every switchback is like red light, green light for trail running. It's like, approach the end of the switchback, decelerate, red light. And uh, fortunately, the, the stakes are a little bit less high because on this trail, you know, I might 
go off the side slightly. Uh, whereas in Squid Game, you get shot with a high caliber rifle. <laughs> you were telling me about this after yeah. the run. And all I could think about was the idea that I have run so many red lights, both in driving and in trail running. <laughs> so I think the story of like my trail running existence is that I'm just like taking way too much force and way too much acceleration into these switchbacks. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, whoa, that's a switchback. <laughs> got it, got to run. And sometimes it doesn't pan out quite well. <laughs> the red light cams remind me. So I drove a, dad, a car that would register my dad when I was in, in law school. Um, and while, you know, the red light cams will send photos of whoever's driving the car. Um, and so my dad just compiled a lit of like 10 different photos of me <laughs> singing in the front seat of the car with like my mouth wide open, just busting through like a red light cam. So uh, yeah, not my finest moment or perhaps my finest. I'm not exactly sure. But I was having, I was just having like deep thoughts out there yeah. today while we were turning and I just was feeling the vibes between us. Like I was thinking out there, like, I feel like a lot of times they talk in relationships about like romantic chemistry yeah. or like emotional chemistry. And I feel like David, I feel like we have really good like trail running chemistry uh. and I'm all for it. Like I felt like today we were just like moving in sync. We had flow. I was singing, I was singing ludicrous out yeah. there. Like when I move, you move just, just like, like that. that. And I was like, that's our song. That's what we're feeling. We're feeling the trotting chemistry. And so like, I just was all about that today. I felt well, like we were vibing. We're both very accepting of each other's bodily fluids, which perhaps helps that's true. with trotting. The number of times that I've spit on you is probably pretty wild. Yeah. But that's actually very true. You are a spitter, which I don't really understand. Like, I feel like it uses an extra breath to spit. You should just swallow. Um, and that's our lesson for the day <laughs> for everyone. Um, but I, our chemistry does come in fits and starts. I mean, there was the run we did this weekend on Sunday and it was a warm day for Boulder. It was like mid seventies in November and, uh, we didn't bring water. Uh, I took a few wrong turns for us, uh, early in the run. So we got very late in that run and Megan was like a dried out raisin and, uh, we had some moments, I would say. It was supposed to be a 14-mile day, and yeah. it wound up being an 18-mile loop, and we had no fuel, no water. It was very hot, and there were moments when I was really, really not feeling that trail running yeah, chemistry. Yeah. I got to be honest with you. So today was kind of like the return from big jump truck energy. It was like <laughs> resetting the dopamine vibes between us yeah. on the trails. It was great. It was the makeup sex of trail running. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Lion's Lair, perfect spot for makeup sex, because it's just like – the trail running version of okay, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you could get creative. Where? There are a lot of podcast listeners out there. Perhaps they'd be interested. That really <laughs> the, works well. The metaphorical makeup sex because it's just like, it's such a flowy trail. It's yeah. like a perfect spot to play red light, green light and not have like astronomical crises. So I, I don't know. It's perfect. Uh, I'll go with it. A lot of body bodily fluids out there. Um, yeah. And also on the theme of gratitude, which is kind of going to be our whole theme for this episode, um, I was taking notes from comments Megan made during the week. And so we're going to use some of these over time that I'm just recording without her knowing. But my two favorite ones have a common shared theme. Uh, so this was on, I believe, Wednesday morning of last week, where all of a sudden I hear from the other room, dude, I love peeing. Um, and that was it. So comment on that. Do you love peeing? I love, okay, the feeling of when you really, really have yeah. to pee and then you finally go pee. It's like a dopamine hit right there. <laughs> it's like the greatest life release. And you're like, oh, I can finally feel good again. And I think I had it that morning. And I just was commenting like, this is totally like a shared human experience. Yeah. And how awesome is that? Well, the even better one is the next one, which happened, I think, a few days later when you didn't know I was doing this from the other room. I love pooping. It's just such a cool human thing that we can poop, you know? <laughs> and of course, I'm not even responding to these in the moment. I'm just like, 
Okay, Megan, this is just kind of what she does all day long uh, over there having uh, orgasmic bathroom experiences with uh, her expulsions. It's, I mean, it, it truly is a human experience. Also, yeah. I feel like whenever you like think about someone and you feel daunted about like giving a presentation to them, I just take a step back and I remind myself like everyone poops. I like it. There's a there's a children's story that says everyone poops. Yeah. And I feel like it really needs to be an adult thesis <laughs> because it's so important for combating like presentation anxiety, life anxiety, feeling daunted. Yeah. It's great. So you, you take it a step further where the, the public speaking advice always used to be a imagine other people naked you're like imagine them naked and pooping and just kind of like feeling awkward on the toilet and that's just makes you feel comfortable with it yeah that's, what you're about. that's that's just what i roll with but i feel like these are two examples we were driving the other day and just having an absolutely absurd conversation yeah. i don't even remember what the conversation was about but a lot of people ask us like what's the day in the life like for you and it's it's truly just a lot like these podcast conversations <laughs> like pretty ridiculous some mind-blowing facts a lot of pooping i would say there's a little bit more like argument than we sometimes do in the podcast because like in that's the podcast we encourage agreement for a little bit more but we'll sometimes get at each other's throats i mean for two minutes on that run on sunday in the heat there was a little bit of like back and forth where you were like I, you know righteously oh righteously that's like a Freudian slip rightfully <laughs> um telling me about like the wrong turns and, and perhaps not planning ahead as much as i should have with with certain things and i was like you can take control of this, man. This is your thing too. Um, so that doesn't always make the podcast perhaps. That's true. I actually did feel, I've been working on this of like having patience during runs because sometimes yeah. I feel like when my heart rate is at like 175, 180, my patience meter goes through the roof. <laughs> I like would score negative levels on patience. And I've been trying to work on that. And I was actually proud. Sunday, that two minutes, perhaps not my finest moment of yeah. losing patience, but it was only two minutes. And in the old days, I feel like that could have been like 30 or 40. So I gave myself a little pat in oh, the back, yeah. but it's like, I feel like I can still reduce that to 30. 30 seconds. That being said, though, we have a lot of sometimes we have arguments, not too many, but I think we do have a lot of good with the, the makeup metaphorical and literal versions <laughs> of, of what happens after arguments as well. All online there. Um, yeah, actually, the the new watches, the um, the Garmin 745 that I've been using, its wrist heart rate is accurate. And so what I've been doing recently to make Megan feel better about when her heart rate's super high and she might be feeling a little bit frustrated on a run or whatever, is I turn it to the heart rate screen and put it in front of her face and show my heart rate's high too. So we're in this together. We can we can both be a little bit upset. Actually, that happened today on Lion's Lair. I was like, Megan, my heart's in the 160s right now. And you're like, mine, actually, what'd you say when we got home? I was like, mine was in the 160. I was like, mine was 168 at the moment. I was taking you to the cleaners, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I was pretty proud about how high, how your heart rate was. I was yeah. like, I'm doing work. <laughs> Megan definitely took me to the cleaners. Um, so another uh, quick little gratitude piece that I wanted to share was from an athlete's log this morning. So this athlete um, went through a early morning run a couple years ago where they were unfortunately assaulted. It was such a tragedy um, and it went sent them into a really dark place with really severe PTSD. Um, and this story has now been told in, in some um, running outlets, but I don't want to personally tell it again here too much. Um, but I will say that the follow-up is this morning, this athlete said, I'm at 70% today, um, which is the highest we've been since that, the accident for being able to run in the mornings in the dark. And she, she, I asked her why, and she's like, because there were Christmas lights out. Um, oh, and I think that's that's, be that's really beautiful. That's so amazing. I feel like I'm getting goosebumps here, sitting sitting here and listening to that. But this has been a practice recently. Like I feel like at dinner we've just made this concerted effort. Actually, it all started from the comments about I love peeing. You're yeah. like, oh my gosh, Megan, like that's a really ridiculous bout of gratitude. And so we've just had these gratitude sessions at dinner where we'll start dinner off by talking about like 
you know, what's the most thing, what's the thing today that you've had the most gratitude for? And then often it becomes like the four or five other things that we've had <laughs> gratitude for too. And it's been, I've really enjoyed that practice in that session. With yeah. You. It's like what they say with gratitude journaling or whatever, right? Like where you just notice the little things. Um, that's what I love. You're like this constantly with like bodily expulsions or whatever. <laughs> um, in my cooking, even you'll be like, this is great. Or you're just finding, finding those things. And so, yeah, it's been a really cool way. Actually, we recommend that to every, every couple, every family, everything. It's just like, structure your conversations at dinner around things you have gratitude for. And then it'll usually go other directions, but it's kind of, it's really fun. It's really helpful. I feel like, don't you? I absolutely love it. And also final point of gratitude. And I feel like this is, yeah. how, this is exactly how our dinner conversations go is we start with one and then we're down to like 10 points yeah, of gratitude. Just random things. Uh, another point of gratitude from this week, you freaking crushed a race. You did Aww. so awesome. What you did, the backcountry wilderness half marathon, yes. the backcountry wilderness of Highlands Ranch, which was very much <laughs> suburbia. This was like the most non wilderness trails I've seen, but great marketing because they had yeah. like a ton of people at the yeah, race. Like such a well-run race. It was awesome. runners there. Yeah. Um, they had $400 to the winner. So it was a big, big moment where I was like, you never know in Colorado who's going to show up when there's $400 to the winner. Um, and I mean, I was like actually proud of a few different things. One was this is the same trails that we did in a race in 2015. So I was in my 20s back then. Um, and my segment times were all about 20 seconds per mile faster. Um, so pushing back against that age curve, baby, I'll take it. You straight crushing. Were you thinking of, I was actually, so I was running those trails. I was, I was doing a long run that day. And I was thinking about the fact that we had done this race back in the day. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a comparison metric. Were you actively thinking of that comparison metric during the race? Like what was going through your head? Fuck no. No, (laughs) It's probably similar similar to what you described where when you're at like 175 heart rate or whatever, I'm not thinking of much. So I don't, I didn't remember any of the trails particularly. Um, which was probably a benefit. Um, but yeah, I mean, the other thing I really liked is I closed faster than I ever have too, um, which has always been a weak spot for me. I'm always the type of person, like the high school cross country runner that takes it out and then dies a slow death um, in the next few miles. And I was able to close really fast at this race. Um, and, you know, athletes that we coach went one, two, three, which was really cool. But um, I thought that was a really interesting moment to segue a little bit into aging more generally. Um, and some ideas about aging and physiology that apply to everyone, um, because there's a lots of really interesting things about aging, but what's most fascinating to me is that this process starts young. Um, and you can look to other sports for this, but we're talking like 25 is when a lot of your, a lot of people reach their max power output a little bit older for women, maybe 26, 27. But after that, we're all playing this game where we need to consider that we're not 18 anymore and training changes based on those processes. And we're going to dive into that. I thought something that was really funny post-race yeah. though was you finished post-race and you were, you were proud of your clothes and your ability to like you know, progress <laughs> in negative split as the yeah. race went on. And you gave me this really long and beautiful answer about like muscle fiber typology <laughs> and muscle fiber <laughs> recruitment. And then we got more into your race strategy and I realized that you took a 70 milligram caffeinated gel yeah. that our mice had been eating downstairs and running around like Kachoge. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but I think that's the reason. Yeah. Well, uh, when you, when you you first heard that you said holy shit and i want to emphasize that that did cause some trips to the porta body <laughs> with some less than holy shit so um be careful with that but um you know i actually that was it seemed to help i felt really good until the end of the race when i had to evacuate everything in my body um but you know a lot of a lot of fascinating things are involved here like my theory for myself is that as an athlete ages um, type 1 muscle fiber recruitment becomes predominant so slow twitch muscle fiber recruitment I went to college to play football. I used to be able to dunk 
not a real basketball because I couldn't palm it, but <laughs> a small one for my little small hands. Um, and, you know, once my body is moving in that direction, maybe it'll improve long term. But even for athletes that don't have that background, they're doing the same things. Um, and actually, it reminds me of my dad, uh, who is a, a big time athlete and is, he's like 69. Um, but he's always told me, you're not going to hit your peak until you're in your 40s, um, which gives you a lot of like guidance to where I came from because my dad was that type of support. But also, um, I'm, I hope to prove him right. Um, maybe even a little bit later. We'll I'm pretty confident you will. Also, I'm, I love the impression you just did of your dad. That was spot on. <laughs> you know your dad so well. And it's funny, this, the parallels between you two are uncanny. And I'm I'm really pumped about that. Just your, dad's, your dad's awesome. We both go on digressions to tell very long stories that don't really apply to much. Um, so the coolest thing related to aging this week, and now we're going to get a little bit into training and stories and stuff, is the Dipsy Race in Mill Valley and the story of Mark Tatum, um, this year's winner at 61 years old. I love the Dipsy Race. I think it's such a cool concept. I think it makes us think about all types of different, you know, different types of athletes, different types of training. Yeah. So the underlying premise of the race is that it's an age-graded race. So cool. There's not that many <laughs> age-graded races out there. And so what happens is that runners get head starts depending upon where they are in the in the um in terms of their overall age. So for men starting at age 31, there's a minute extra that they get in terms of a head start. At 38, it's two minutes. And then sometimes even later on, like you can add a whole minute per yeah. year later on. And then actually what I thought was most interesting was for women from 52 to 66, ages 52 to 66, women gave in an extra 11 minutes. Um, to cover just start. seven miles. Yes. For um, context. Has yeah. vert, has like 2000 feet of vert, but it points out that, you know, these age processes are happening. And my favorite part about the Dipsy is I feel like those head starts are basically saying, you're just a little bit closer to death statistically speaking, uh, perhaps not for every individual, <laughs> but you are. And so I'm, I'm already at my, uh, my single year head start. Actually, I don't believe women get their first head start till later till like they're 39 or 40. So mm. you're, you're dealing with a lot less inertia right now. You're not statistically closer to death quite yet. Um, but I'm, I'm moving down that path every second of the day. Actually, as I was thinking about this and like doing the math, I'm like what these statistics mean. I was like, we should have these intense formulas for the game of horse or pig when oh, we play yeah. basketball because it's like, I need my extra, I need I need you to have an extra letter when we start. <laughs> there needs to be an algorithm for this. Yeah, um, perhaps, you know, our trail disagreements can give you a handicap because I'm always right. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it brings up an article I wrote last week, and this is gonna get back to Mark Tatum, called The Uncertainty of Aging and Athletics. So if you haven't seen that in Toronto Magazine, um, I it was I thought it was one of the articles I spent the most time on. I've been sitting on it now for like two months, um, trying to work on it in the background while I'm writing like scientific training articles and things. And basically the whole idea of this article is about this constant awareness that we all have, that we are marching down these head start paths, um, both with our athletics and everything else. Um, and so I think it's something that really comes into play, not just with training, but with life. And I think too, so for me, this was one of the most beautiful. You've written a lot of articles at this point, and I absolutely loved this article. I thought <laughs> your writing in this article was so fantastic. I actually read it. So you had sent it to me to review, and it was just kind of sitting in my inbox. Yeah. And I wound up taking an unplanned rest day uh, and read it because I was like, this is exactly what I need in this moment. Like, yeah. I need just this hug and this reminder of like what matters in life. But what I thought was most fantastic about it was that you you couched a lot of these sayings um, through Smash Mouth All-Star. Like, that's how you used to <laughs> open up the open up the, the piece. Yeah. And then Smash Mouth, like, like two days later, it was canceled. And yeah. I thought it was so funny that here you were just like I you know, emphasizing Smash Mouth and then it was canceled. It's the ultimate proof that time is a flat circle because I was writing about, you know, hey now, you're an all-star. Like we all know that song. And that was just kind of being this joke that structured the article that was very serious. And uh, then, of course, between drafting and publication, the lead singer of Smash Mouth, who I haven't thought of in 20 years, gets uh, goes on stage 
and does like like kind of evil salutes to the crowd and stuff. And uh, yeah, he's canceled. So kept it in the article, but uh, did, did include a disclaimer. Um, so a number of things that are, are super relevant here. Um, one, to get back to that point about age 25, the science of peaking in power sports is fascinating because we have these huge um, data jumps, baseball being the, the one that I always think of. So back in the day, we used to think that baseball players peaked in their early 30s. Um, this is when athletes would get huge contracts. You might remember Albert Pujols went to the Los Angeles Angels for $300 million at age 30 or whatever. Um, and then Congress had a few uh, hearings that cracked down on steroid use. And all of a sudden, the real data started to shine, which is baseball players peak before age 27. And there are exceptions, obviously, but as soon as performance-enhancing drugs had a real crackdown, uh, it became a, it became a problem for aging athletes. And that's really fascinating to think about Albert Pujols. First 10 years of his contract, one of the best players of all time. Last 10 years of the contract, he's worse than replacement level. So he's as good as any minor leaker you would bring up. And we're all facing that. Running's a little bit different, but um, if we deny that that exists, we are doing ourselves a disservice as well as the whole community. Um, it doesn't do anyone good to deny it. And I think that was one of the most fundamental points of the article was that this article is relevant for every single person. Like, I think it might've been actually the first, you read a lot of Trowanang articles that might be relevant to like this population of people or this yeah. population of people. That article relevant to the entire Trowanang <laughs> population because as we're sitting here right now, like, our cells are actively aging. And that to me, I think yeah. is wild to think about. Actually, you had one of my favorite quotes that you've written in there. You said, Stoics say, memento mori, remember that you must die as a guide for actions. I think runners should add memento regressi. Remember that the age curve spares no one and it's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, well, first, regressi is not an actual word. Kind of <laughs> you're you're of... contemplating this and you're like, can I can I use the word regressi? I'm like, sure, it sounds, it sounds good. It sounds <laughs> well, Latin. I looked up the actual Latin word and asked someone that's a specialist in Latin and I was like, that's that's too complicated. I I don't play that Latin game. Um, but the article all culminated with essentially a tribute to the style of Mark Tatum. Um, so for background, I met Mark when he was 54, 53, something like that. He's at day 2,500 in his training log. And every single day, Mark shows the freak up. And it's one of the most inspirational things I've ever seen. And it shows me how I want to age as an athlete. It's not this question of like, what exactly is it going to do for me? Am I going to beat those age head starts? It's more about like, what can I do today to become the best athlete I can be? Not worrying like, does this match up to where I was, you know, 20 years ago or 40 years ago in the case of Mark or whatever. And you published this article about aging a week before Dipsy. And I <laughs> love that you did this. It was an interesting coaching move. And I, I really, I really liked it a lot is you put a lot of pressure on Mark yeah. and as it related to Dipsy. And sometimes so, you got to light the fire under your head. This is what you wrote about Mark a week before the race. That aging process is so full of uncertainty. My favorite to win Dipsy this year is Mark Tatum, a 61-year-old rocket man who has defined those head start curves and is one of the best athletes in the world. On the flip side, I have coached athletes who can't keep up with the head starts and fall further back every year. The uncertainty of that trajectory is something we all face, whether we race or not. Genetics, environment, training, circumstances, luck, all combine to create a constant unsteadiness when it comes to projecting our athletic futures. And wow, holy crap, you <laughs> put so much pressure on Mark. Yeah, so this race for the last seven years, ever since I met him, has been our... Uh, light on the hill. It's been what we've been pursuing. It's what we've been going after. And he's gone there every year. He's moved up in the ranking steadily. And this year, the straight strategy was to fucking go for it from the gun. And he did that and he won by over a minute. And I'm so excited for a number of reasons. One, because Mark's the best human I know. He, he embodies everything I want to be as an athlete. Two, because he gets another minute head start next year. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Which is gonna be awesome. That being said, I just learned that the winner also gets a 
uh, a minute docked on them. So they have to start a minute farther back, which is kind of cruel and unusual that punishment. That is cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> um, but, you know, mainly because this race embodies everything I think about being an athlete in this world. It's like the pros, whoever's winning Western states, all of that comes and goes. I'm so fascinated to see like who keeps at it long-term and views this as something that can be a lifestyle and we can build up. And I think a lot of that gets back to like how you train and how you treat your body and how you think about aging, not trying to match up with like some study that's based on 20 year old college kids or whatever. And I think we have an underlying philosophy in swap that we use for athletes who might be older. And then we also use this for athletes too, who are recovering from injury, who might be more injury prone. And I think this is all kind of fundamentally set around the idea of like, let's work within like the 30 to 45 mile per week um, kind of like range. And then across those miles, let's really emphasize hill strides. Yeah. So I think Mark was doing hill strides like two or three times per week yeah. and really using that to reinforce like the neuromuscular principles to really use that. Also hill strides, fantastic power output generator. Yeah. They're kind of like plyometrics actually, when you think about really doing like strong, powerful hill strides and then also working in some series of, of um, you know, hill workouts in there as well. And then working in plenty of cross training to boost that yeah. aerobic volume under the curve. Yeah. One fascinating about Mark um, that he said would be great to share in the article that I didn't is that um, he does delivery driving sometimes now because he was looking for something to do um, as his career's pivot career pivoted and sometimes we'll just be like okay today you just run to the doors um, you know those little bits of, of um, activity help um, but on the strides point so we talk about strides a lot I think sometimes people associate strides with like college runners or whatever it's so much more important as you age because like, as we're talking about this max power decrease, strides are this wonderful way to actually do it. And it brings up um, Chris Zielinski, who was uh, the 10K American record holder at one point. And when he retired, I remember reading some quote from him where he essentially said, I knew it was time to go once I had to do strides after every single run. Um, but the point being like, we're not planning on going, we're not planning on retiring, right? Like none of us want to be like that if we're, this is a lifelong thing, which means we got to do them not after every run, but a lot. And that's kind of where hill strides come in. And, and it really feeds back into the physiology to prevent that max power decrease that we're all facing from actually translating into speed decreases. And what Mark's seen, he's actually gotten faster in the last five years. And that's awesome. But the point being like, we are not bench pressing. We are not hitting 600 foot home runs. The actual power demands in running are relatively small. We can stimulate those through things like hill strides in a way that are really beneficial. And I think as we talk about the idea that athletes lose power over time with aging very naturally in the physiological process is the idea that focusing on cadence and yeah. focusing oh, on, yeah. on turnover and focusing on really improving biomechanics can go a long way in the aging process because those those fundamental issues can really help over, overcome the idea of power loss. That's so interesting what you say on cadence. Like I'd, I'd be curious uh, to look at maybe even with Strava, like looking at age-based athletes to see if any athletes over 50 that are excelling are low cadence runners, because you'll sometimes see that in younger athletes like Jim Wamsley, let's say, you know, he's a loper. He's beautiful. Um, it's a work of art. I'm horny right now, <laughs> but you know, Mark and others like him, I, you almost always see very, very, very high cadence. And that makes sense if we're thinking that power per stride might decrease slightly, but you can modulate some of that with the neuromuscular changes and like, elevated cadence. And that's actually something that's hugely different for me. Like if you look back at my race file in 2015 versus my race file now at that race, my cadence now is four steps per minute higher. Um, so probably there's been some subconscious countering of that effect in my own life and training. 
And I think also you fed that to me naturally. I think there's something about when you run with a partner that is yeah. naturally higher cadence. I feel like my cadence actually tries to match that. Maybe it's because I'm constantly trying to half step you. <laughs> but I think there's something about like your your increase in cadence correlates with my increase in cadence and I'm fascinated. You by are that. the ultimate half stepper. Though, I am. Right? It's true. Do, is that do you realize it's I, because, no, I, thought, I think it's I think it's a very weird psychological thing. I uh, yeah. people have told me that before and I like truly don't feel like I'm half stepping, but I actually do think I feel like it's like Einstein's theory of relativity. It's <laughs> yeah. like, for you, it's like everyone is right with me, even though they're half it probably gets back to some, uh, you know, competitiveness uh, things that you deal with that I don't. The other important training topic relates to VO2 max. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this topic with like VO2 max training for aging athletes? Yeah, I think this one is super interesting. So I think paradoxically, older athletes can actually go harder in workouts than younger athletes for a few different reasons. So one, older athletes are actually working to push the VO2 max forward. So there's yeah. a natural VO2 max decline that happens with age. It actually, so for every decade after age 40, VO2 max declines approximately 10% which is pretty significant. Yeah. And so a big part of training is working to push up to push up against that. Then I think the other thing is, is that for younger athletes, we're often prioritizing this like massive reservoir of aerobic volume under the curve. Yeah. And we're still doing that with older athletes, but there's a, a mileage limitation. Like for yeah. younger athletes, sometimes we're able to run 80, 90, hundred miles per week, or we're adding on miles to what they're already capable of doing. And so I think that's where this, like this focus on VO2 max workouts actually comes in for the older population. Yeah. I love that so much. I mean, one, we're also not concerned with uh, fast twitch muscle fiber recruitment nearly as much. Um, and when you start to think about, oh, well, we're lower volume and we're actually concerned a little bit with VO2 max, where for a younger athlete, we're essentially saying, this is all genetic. Don't worry about it. It'll find its place. For an older athlete, we're saying, yes, it's still strongly genetic, but then your behavior influences it in a way that it doesn't for athletes that might be in their 20s. Um, so VO2 max becomes a bigger part starting at 25, but then especially progressing to Mark. So like, for Mark, Mark as an example, basically every week for the last six or seven years, he's done some sort of hill workout. Sometimes it'll be five by two minute hills. Um, other times it'll be eight by one minute steep hills or whatever. Um, he mixes that with hill strides, a little bit of tempo on uphills in on the weekend. But other than that, that's like base, the basic bare bones nature of how he trains. And it's how we train all of our aging athletes. And one thing we started to see is that approach works even for younger athletes um, that might be able to do a little bit more aerobic volume if they struggle with some injuries or things like that. And I think the thing about all of this in general is that we really just need a lot more research on yeah. this. So a lot of the research and that VO2 max stat that I had mentioned about the VO2 max decline by decade, those come from a lot, oftentimes from cross-sectional studies. Yeah. And we really truly need long-term longitudinal studies to understand what's happening to individual athletes over sequential periods of decades. So what is cross-sectional? Just for cross Cross-sectional is when you take like, let's take a group of older runners and a group of younger runners okay. and compare like, what are the differences in times? Whereas <laughs> longitudinal studies, you'd be following the same cohort of runners or the same runner to see how they're being, how their physiology is impacted over time. That's super fascinating. And those are much yeah. stronger. The other thing too that bothers me about some of this exercise physiology research, and we are falling into this trap 100%, <laughs> is that we're categorizing people into older people, older runners and younger runners. Yeah. And that to me actually makes me so frustrated because it's like, in reality, people who are like age 60 and running are young. People yeah. who are age 70 and running are young. And it kind of makes me bristle when I hear these like terms, older running, older runners or younger runners, and then the aging process. But I think we can, we can handle it more delicately. Well, we're all aging runners, I think is the big conclusion. Actually, we were, we were talking about how sore we are when we wake up every morning, no matter what we do. That's when I feel age the most is when I get up and it's totally different than it was 10 years ago, <laughs> especially in my lower legs, my calves and feet 
not a huge fan of that early AM wake up. I think the thing too, though, as like the final point on aging is we've talked about this a lot, especially as we're like hobbling down the stairs in yeah. the morning is the ideal. I often turn like, as soon as I start thinking about aging, I start thinking about death. And that's how you started the Trailrunner magazine article is the idea that like to combat against that is just like giving ourselves experiences that imprint on our minds. Yeah. And I read this quote from Atul Gwanda. He's like an incredible, like he's an incredible doctor and physician. He writes great books and he wrote this book called being mortal. And one of his quotes was in the end, people don't view their life as merely the average of all its moments, which after all is mostly nothing much plus some sleep for human beings. Life is meaningful because it's a story. A story has a sense of a whole and its arc is determined by the significant moments. The ones where something happens. Measurements of people's minute-by-minute -minute levels of pleasure and pain miss the fundamental aspect of human existence. A seemingly happy life may be empty. A seemingly difficult life may be devoted to a great cause. We have purposes larger than ourselves. And I love the idea just <laughs> about like, this is totally a story and yeah. like, just freaking shoot your shot. So you have these memories that imprint on your brain like a story. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. It also reminds me of like when people think about it's something I think about with the podcast or coaching or writing or anything is that people don't remember what you say or do. They remember how you make them feel. Um, and that those like, it's like what you're talking about with imprinting. Um, but I wanted to actually do a reading here too, of Phil Gaimon. So this is a different way to approach the same point, a little bit less, uh, intellectual and his book pro cycling on $10 a day, an amazing book, by the way. Um, but he was talking to an athlete that, uh, had retired and this is what that person said to Phil. Let's just say you should keep racing as long as you can. I know it's rough, but it still beats this boring life. And then Phil said, that's what I figured. Cycling isn't easy and the uncertainty can be downright menacing, but there's also menace in the mundane. Ooh, menace in the mundane. That's a, that's a, I like that. Isn't that pretty good? Yeah, that's real good. I was, I was a huge fan. Um, so, you know, congrats to Mark and also just hell yeah to everyone out there, you know, that's going through this process, which is literally all of us. Um, and so if you've never thought about aging, Think about it a lot right now because I think it's going to be incredibly important to your athletic future. Um, and if you think about it all the time, just know we're right there with you, uh, you know, limping down the stairs in the morning, sometimes dancing, but dance limping, I would say. Dance limping kind of describes my overall aura of dancing. Yeah, that's, that's true. It's no matter what physical state I'm in. I'm always doing the stanky leg, uh, but my leg's just a little stanky from running too many miles. Um, okay. So next topic is on embracing competition. Uh, this is all structured around an article from Zoe Rome uh, that was in Toronto Magazine called A Love Letter to My Competitive Side. And it is so fucking good. It was so good. I feel like as I was thinking about the idea of like things imprinting on our brain, yeah. I'm like, let's shoot our shots and freaking care about, and care about it in that process because I feel like that's what's going to print our brain. And I read this article from Zoe and I was like, Zoe gets it. Like, <laughs> this is so it. Also, Zoe like showed up yeah. at Rio de Lago 100 and and got third place and was just like crashing bitches. Eighth fastest time ever, eighth overall while being third place woman. Uh, just a total absolute beast, editor-in-chief of Toronto at 28 years old. But what I love about this competition article is that, and the whole idea of competition that we're going to talk about right now, is that, yeah, it's not about winning or whatever. It's about showing the fuck up, just like Mark Tatum did. Um, and I think Zoe and Mark are kind of like soul siblings uh, separated by a few decades. Um, so do you want to read the quote or you should You got I? this. Okay. Um, so this is Zoe. I didn't always think of myself as a competitive person. I felt uncomfortable trying tying much of myself to competition because in my eyes, I wasn't good enough to claim that as part of my identity. I felt I lacked the bravado or ability to put myself out there. Competitive people were just born different with the easy self-assurance that comes from being the kid in gym class that could do 16 pull-ups during the presidential physical fitness test. Not the kid whose best event was the sit-in reach, parentheses, 
I'm very good at sitting. <laughs> I love that so much. Who did I think I was? Competitiveness is for people who are good at competing. Then I started running trail races. That is a damn good piece of writing. It's so good. Also, the quote about the visa and reach gave me a big smile. Yeah, yeah. I was horrible at the visa and reach, to be honest. Oh, with you were bad. You were I one was... of the good. You were with the people that were good at everything, though, weren't you? Would you could you do chin ups when you were you pretty good? I could, but I couldn't get the like the stupid presidential fitness challenge because I couldn't do the visa and reach. <laughs> so this gives an insight. I was bad at sitting. <laughs> yeah, even now. Um, actually, you have improved greatly. Um, this is gives insight into my personality. So back then, when I knew it was coming, I would start stretching my hamstrings for two weeks. And I, every night, um, my parents would, gosh, what do they think about me? I would sit in the middle while we were watching family TV and, and lean down and touch my toes. And just at first, I wouldn't be able to touch my toes. And eventually, I'd be putting my head on my knees because I would stretch for like 30 minutes at a time every single night. We now know that that is terrible uh, for your body. Um, but I had to counter the fact that I could only do one pull up if I jumped and, <laughs> and then got it. I think a lot of people would probably identify with that. Um, so yeah, I feel like we would have been really close in elementary school. But then maybe you would have dumped me during the presidential fit physical fitness test when I embarrassed the family. Well, you would have taught me how to stretch my hamstrings. Maybe, I, maybe I wouldn't have ruptured them. Maybe I would have done something to my hamstring pliability at that young age. That would have been fortuitous for my I'd future. Like, hey, girl, you want to come over here and stretch? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, what, what Megan was saying is like, all of this gets back to imprinting on your brain these ideas. And to do that, you have to freaking care. Um, you have to put yourself out there and show up even when it's really, really, really hard. And Zoe has a beautiful quote in that. She says, true competition means rejecting the idea that it's cool not to care. And about caring so much that you'll spend months, years, a whole career maybe, chasing an objective that doesn't matter to anyone but yourself. It means embracing an endless curiosity about your capability and your shortcomings. Because being your best means accepting that sometimes you will fall short. Yeah. And I think that's, I just love that because I think like a natural process of human behavior is like when we care about something so much is to be like, nope, don't yeah. care about it. Like not important to me to play hard to get with whatever that thing is. And I've really in my own life been like working to try to push back against yeah. that. And I think where I see myself do that most is I like very often hesitate to like tell people what races I'm doing. Uh -huh. And I think that ties back to the idea that like, you know, I've had this autoimmune thing and I, as a result, I've had so many joint and tendon injuries yeah. that like, sometimes start lines don't feel very tangible to me. And I yeah. feel like if I announce them, it's like, well, maybe there's a 50% chance <laughs> I'll get there. But I feel like that's still a big part of the process. And I've been working to like own that more recently. So are you, are you planning on owning that more in the future? Like yeah, too? yeah, 100%. I love it. Because it's like by putting, I mean, maybe I don't make the start line, but it's like, that's okay. Like yeah. that's just a part, that's the part of this whole running journey that every single runner goes through. And by being open and honest about that, one, I think it imprints more on my mind because I freaking care and I really yeah. do freaking care. And then two, it's like, this is just part of being human. Yeah. And you have to freaking care. Yeah. Um, and it's all about the failure, which gets us to the next quote. And I'll read this one from Zoe. Most importantly, competition let me see how other runners process those inevitable, less desirable outcomes. Watching them handle, quote, failure with grace and self-compassion showed me that I could do the same. Competing means opening yourself up to failure, often in uncomfortably public settings. It means acknowledging that you want something really, really badly, knowing you may not ever get there, and pursuing it with reckless zeal anyway. Letting people see that is hard, but it's rewarding. Sharing it with other people makes it easier. Wow. Yeah. It's the coolest, right? That's so cool. Well, it also brings me back. So like the two themes here are sharing and caring, yeah. which are like, I feel like that's like on the kindergarten board at school, but the kindergarten teachers are so smart because that's like what life is fucking about. Yeah. And I mean, I love it in the context of athletics. So like everyone out there that does athletics, like care so hard, set these huge goals specifically for this reason, because once you do that, you will fail. And then that's where you actually learn. I mean, I think back to my life and it's like, 
the good races are really exciting, but like the shit that I've gone through as an athlete is definitely what made me what I am now, like a hundred percent. And I hope to fail more. Actually, it reminds me of at the start of 2020, I was going back and I was reminded of this by um, someone at Trailrunner recently, my article that was the preview of 2020. So January, 2020 is in 2020, Let's fail spectacularly. <laughs> and uh, that's prescient. <laughs> yeah, certainly enough. I think I kind of ruined everything for everyone for the rest of time. So hopefully you learned something because uh, that article was a little bit too much. <laughs> that was fantastic, though. But I think for me also, too, it gets that. I think sometimes when I care so much, I have to be careful, though, that I'm not linking that caring to like an external reward metric yeah, and yeah. that it's really truly about internal gratitude. And that's a point that I feel like I just keep coming or, back to my own self. Or link directly to self-worth, right? Yes, like, yeah. Which is, the I mean, the hardest part of all. It's something that's great on the internet. Like, so speaking of writing, one place I've has really helped me is understanding that whatever I write is gone the next day. So we like we might mention it on the podcast, but even the podcast, it's gone the next day. And that's liberating. One, it, it dissociates you a little bit from your ego because at the end of the day, like no one gives a shit. Um, but two, it lets you put yourself out there and be vulnerable. And race results are the same thing that you can put yourself out there, be vulnerable, and it's gone the next day, good or bad. It's just what imprints on you in that process. I mean, same thing about Strava files. Yeah, Strava yeah. files, you upload them, they're gone. I mean, they're they're physically there, but they're like mentally gone the next day. Same process. This actually brings me back to, so we've been talking about dopamine has just been this like running theme yeah. throughout all of our episodes because it's a freaking awesome neurotransmitter. I love it. But <laughs> Is that your favorite neurotransmitter? Definitely. Your power rankings are number one dopamine number and then one. everything else is like 20. Yeah, yeah. It's getting like, hit by a bus and then every, <laughs> and then 20, 20. I don't even know what the other. Uh, we're just going to go past that. Neuroepinephrine or something. But anyways, in dopamine. <laughs> just I, that one I was like, I don't even know what to say to that. Dopamine is fucking awesome. Number one. And then I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to rank your children. That's not unfair. <laughs> unfair, unfair. It's like ranking bikes. Can't do it. Um, but in Dopamine Nation, Anna Lemke talked about the idea that – so there's tons of mice studies out there looking at dopamine. And one of my favorite all-time mice studies is the idea. So they were like, well, are mice just like running for the rewards? Because oftentimes in mice studies, when they're running on wheels, we give yeah. them like rewards, we give them treats, we give them food, we give them like something that's pleasurable. So a bunch of researchers in the Netherlands actually what stuck a running wheel outside of like a feral mouse area yeah. and stuck a video camera there. And feral mice were just running on the running wheel for this for the <laughs> sake of joy. But what I thought was so cool was there's this like host of other animals in this urban area that were running on the wheel. So um, shrews, rats, snails, slugs, and frogs were all running on this like freaking awesome wheel. How cool is that? I am trying to imagine how a snail or a slug is running on that wheel. <laughs> you have a real slow wheel. Don't, yeah. don't judge those Strava files. That's, oh, and also don't judge because yeah. if you're a snail or a slug, still run on that wheel. It's still beautiful. Just drag your slime all up and down line flare. Um, that's so beautiful. Yeah, I, I think that as we think about like competition and gratitude and all of this stuff, um, I just keep coming back to experiences. Like, like as we're talking about aging, like I am already starting to regret times I didn't put myself out there, knowing that I probably would have failed 99% of those times relative to my lofty goals. But because I'm like, shit, I miss those experiences. And yeah, I ran kind of fast at those races this weekend. And yeah, my dad thinks I'm peaking at 40, but realistically based on the science, I'm already over that hump probably, you know? And it's like, God damn, I need to get out there and put myself out there and do more things and be more like Zoe and Mark and people like that. And like you, um, which, you know, you're doing in this way where you're putting yourself out there with races. It's the coolest thing. Oh, thanks. Awesome. Well, do you want to go to a big topic about competition in light of shoe sponsorship? Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. I think actually, I think sometimes competition is, I mean, obviously it's awesome. We talk about it like imprinting on the brain. Yeah. But I feel like in relation to like the internal gratitude versus like external rewards, shoe sponsorship is on that side of like external rewards. Yeah. And I feel like it could be a dangerous game for athletes to play, but also one that doesn't come with 
a ton of reward to yeah. be perfectly honest with you. Like we have been on both sides of the shoes. We've had great shoe sponsorships. We've also been unsponsored. And I got to be honest with you, like being unsponsored is pretty awesome. <laughs> I'd also put great in uh, air quotes there when it comes True. to great sponsorship. True. So I'm actually fascinated to see where this conversation goes because we've gotten a lot of questions into the podcast from aspiring professional runners asking about this question or current professional runners. It's something we've dealt with a lot. So a, a few pieces of background before we get into some stories. One, a lot of these uh, shoe contracts, basically all of them I've ever seen, include some provision that you are forbidden from talking about the terms, um, which is kind of wild when you think about it. Um, so essentially what we're out, we're working against is this big black box where none of the information really gets out. The athletes know we have this really interesting point of view where we're able to talk to tons of athletes over time. And so kind of understand the market, understand where people are coming from and how things have evolved over time. I think the other thing too about the shoe about shoe sponsorships and sponsorships in general is that running is a little bit different than a lot of sports. So in a lot of other sports, including professional road running, there's an agent. That's the one yeah. that's like handling the sponsorship. And in trail running, I think there's kind of this agent feedback loop where one, there's not really enough money right now in trail running to attract agents. <laughs> like it doesn't really make sense to have an agent because there's not enough money for that agent to like financially benefit from in terms of yeah. representation. But I think as a result, because there's not agents, like people are largely signing for for deals they shouldn't sign for because it's like, not necessarily that they shouldn't sign for, but deals that are just like not financially representative of what people should be yeah. getting. And so I think there's this like this agent uh, feedback loop that's really challenging in the trail running world. Yeah. And that's one place that it's kind of fun to be us at times because, because we know a lot of the players were able to put people in contact and act as uh, in my case, a somewhat shitty agent. Uh, <laughs> you're a fantastic agent. <laughs> Am I? Yeah, yeah. I feel I like guess... oh, I feel like you're perfectly primed to be an agent. One, because you have the law background. Two, because like you understand the kind of just like the community of trying, yeah. obviously. And three, because you're like super compassionate, and so you're willing to fight for athletes. <laughs> and I think that's so cool. I'm also willing to advise. It reminds me, last year an athlete was about to do a really big race. And I knew this was going to be their breakout race. And I was like, you need to go create an Instagram profile right now because you're going to get tagged after this race and you're going to get thousands of followers. And that's going to feed back into the contracts we're going to try to get later. Um, so let's zoom out. We're eventually going to get to actual numbers and things, but I want to give some context first. So I got my first contact from a shoe company in 2012. So I won a race um, and con I, I'm not sure if I reached out or they reached out to me. It's probably something in between. And it ended up being a sponsorship, pro sponsorship that amounted to what you would assume is like ambassador deal, where I get a few pairs of shoes, a few pairs of shirts, and that's it. Um, and for that, they got my undying loyalty. It was great. I really appreciated it. Um, but that's what most of the deals that you're looking at and that you see and you imagine might include a signing bonus or whatever actually are behind the scenes. Wouldn't you say that? Like, that's... yeah, I would agree. And I think for I think there's like people are in very different places in like running trajectories yeah. and running lives. And I think actually that was something that kind of launched you into this a lot of excitement about running. Like, yeah. you know, you're like, I have this. Even though you weren't getting a salary, like I have this quote unquote like professional shoe deal. Yeah. Like, and I think there's a lot of like initial validation and just like excitement to work towards something when you sign something like that initially. Well, initial validation. That's, is that's I was I and couched that very carefully, especially based on what you were just saying about external like approval. Anyway, like that initial validation doesn't mean shit after a few months. And it really doesn't mean much in the moment either. And I think that's something that's really important for athletes to consider is that like, you know, for me, you know, that company I signed with, like it was Innovate. I liked some of their shoes. I didn't like others. 
why was I signing with that company for a few pairs of shoes? Like it, I was at zero in my bank account, but like that wasn't making or breaking it for me. Like what would make it break it for me athletically is to sign with a company who I like wear their shoes all the time and can use it to reach the next level. Um, and so I tried to like pursue other things. So this is when I started to get a feel for what would become like my proto agent style um, in contact with companies. And in that process, like was like, oh, contact small companies because that's a good opportunity. So contacted this one small company who sent me a pair of shoes and was like, like hinting that there might be money. I later learned that there probably wasn't going to be ever. Um, but I wore their shoes for one day, um, did a little bit of a workout and had my only like perhaps bone injury I've ever had in my entire <laughs> life, um, which is another big problem here. Who knows if the shoes actually work for you? They were also really ugly looking shoes. <laughs> so this was back at Duke when yeah. I was on the Duke track team. And David was notorious for running around campus with these big yellow carpenters headphones and like yeah. long shorts and like these really interesting outfits. And then we threw these shoes into the mix, which were this like strange combination of like zero drop shoes with like a boa and Velcro. And I was <laughs> like, what is going on here? It was wild. Did you, did you, you that wasn't running sex at that point. That wasn't, uh, you know, uh, we weren't in sync. We weren't, moment. I wasn't really feeling ludicrous. In that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there was, it was more of just like a slow jam from the 70s and well, i was like i'm not really sure where this vibe is going you were feeling ludicrous you were feeling move bitch get out the way <laughs> true uh, which was actually i was doing some beyonce magic oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. to the left to the left <laughs> yep uh -huh. I, did ladies. The, I did the dance as i said that um so then eventually in 2014 um we had a, had a good season and i think reached out on our we again we were the ones reaching out reached out to Nike and got a deal with Nike. But as I remember it, I don't think those deals included any financial compensation. They included gear and travel and bonuses, but not a baseline salary or anything. And that was as like athletes that were really emerging in the sport. And so this is like the next level of contract where it's not just a few pairs of shoes. It's basically theoretically unlimited pairs of shoes, um, but still no money unless you win big races and winning those big races is really fucking hard. Yeah, it is hard. I do think so. I think in the, the structure that we negotiated for the bonuses, like if we accumulated bonuses, that amount rolled over into yeah. the salary of the prior year, which is actually a very common structure that we see in shoe companies. And that's where like, if you feel confident in where you are as an athlete, negotiating the bonus structure of the yeah. shoe, shoe shield can be really helpful. But in even, you know, little aside with bonuses, usually they're not going over $3,000 for winning a big race unless it's Western States or UTMB. And then you might start to get 10 or 20,000. Um, but, you know, think about that. That's like your entire life goes into that. So that's a lot of money, but it's not like a life-changing amount of money necessarily. Um, so flash forward, um, you know, even with Nike, like we love Nike, we love their shoes but still had some issues sometimes getting the gear we needed, things like that. Ended up signing with uh, Hoka in 2016. When Megan was coming off, you won sub-ultra runner of the year and ultra runner of the year in the same year. You would hate that I say that, but it's relevant because we're trying to be open with people. And, um, you know, actually, or what do you think about saying financial I think we can share like a general trend. So we, at that point, we signed for what was a salary and then a bonus structure. And the salary yeah. was, I mean, it's pretty small. Like there was no way we were living in California at the time. Zero chance of living in California. A few on months that. rent. A few months rent. Yeah. Yeah. A few so, months rent in the like atrocious apartment that we were living but it's in. It's still California. So yes, it's not. Yeah. Um, and again, with what were bonuses and this was like, you know, Megan at the time was kind of at, at a peak and, um, this is kind of where, so we ended up running with Hoka for a few years. They were great. We love Hoka. They um, were actually, they treat their athletes remarkably well. Yeah. Like real kudos to Hoka and their marketing team and their professional team, because like, I felt like they were really responsive to athletes. And I feel like oh, out of like all the shoe companies out there, they just have a really like, they seem to support their athletes really well. And we yeah. felt that vibe I think, on the team. Definitely. And yeah. you know, I think a lot of co the companies are like that. We're not, we're not trying to trash anyone. I think we're, everyone's doing great. We're just trying to open up some of the the conversation about it. And so, okay. Uh, we ran for them for a few years. 
a couple a couple problems. One, even today, so on today on, on the run, we both ran in Hoka Evo Speedos. We freaking love those shoes and would like die for those shoes. They are the best. As is clearly everyone in the market right yeah. now because Hoka is discontinuing those shoes and they're going for so much money yeah. on eBay because they're fantastic shoes. I was thinking, I, ha- I have a pair that I haven't broken out yet because I ordered like a ton of them. We could probably get like someone's kidney for that. So do you want a kidney? We could probably get a kidney. Uh, we, I mean, do you need a kidney? Uh, you never know. Just put one in the freezer. Just keep it on ice. Store for future use. Um, but on the flip side, for me, their road shoes were not fantastic. And, it, you know, again, it gets back to everyone being different. I mean, I was trying to make the Hoka Kabu work, which was just not for me at all. And I think it made a few years that weren't necessarily up to my potential because I do a lot of my training in road shoes by necessity because of winter and stuff. And it wasn't great. And it gets back to like, sometimes being sponsored versus being unsponsored isn't like there's uh, value propositions that do matter that you might not always be thinking about. And that, and that goes, I, I fucking loved some of their shoes and just didn't like others. And I think the other thing too is, is what might be a good shoe for you when you sign the contract, it might wind up evolving a lot over time, depending yeah. upon like how you're progressing as an athlete. For me, I had hamstring surgery while we were on that contract. And I felt like I was looking for just a little bit slightly of like a different type of shoe, like a different type of like yeah. road running shoe. And that was challenging for me, but that was because of like my own underlying characteristics that changed when we were yeah. on the contract. And that's like, that's hard to anticipate. Yeah. You're a uh, independent contractor that doesn't get paid much. Yeah. Or I mean, think about Roadrunners. What happens if you sign for a company that doesn't have a carbon shoe yeah. and then all of a sudden Nike releases a carbon shoe and what the heck are you supposed to do? Well, now they just wear rebranded that's shoes. True. Actually, yeah. that's a really fascinating thing about Roadrunning. A lot of people are re- wearing rebranded uh, Vaporflies just in their, whatever company they run for. Um, so let's bring it to now um, with what contracts look like and then talk about how people get them, I think. So what contracts look like? Um, at its core, most contracts that you'll see are probably just for a few pairs of shoes. Um, maybe sometimes even just a discount. Um, and that's like a, probably a large percentage of what people tag on Instagram, which is great. It's validating in, in its community. It's no different than I would say like the swap team or something perhaps. Um, but it's not people that are making a living and it's not something that like you should sacrifice your life for necessarily if it's, if it isn't joy in the process for you. Um, then the next level up would be a, like a smaller salary, like 5,000 to $10,000, which is great. And you can couple that with bonuses and make a substantial amount of money, probably not a living unless, you know, you probably have to do some things on the side and yeah. What were you? And that's often coupled with travel too. Yeah. So I think there is actually an awesome part about being sponsored and being able to fly to yeah, Europe on a travel budget. Pretty awesome. I, I, I feel like that is one part of those contracts that do make yeah, sense. Yeah. And the gear is freaking yeah. amazing. Like yeah. it's the best. Um, sometimes a little excessive even. It's so good. Yeah. Actually sometimes companies say like, oh, here's eight to 12 K of gear. And they lump that into the sum. Yeah. Like when they, when they give you, they're like, we have this like 40 K contract for you. But actually when you look at it, it's like 20 K of gear. Yeah. And then you get 20 K of gear and you're like, what the fuck am I supposed <laughs> to do with 20 K worth of gear? Like I don't have enough closets in our in our house to, to store this in. Yeah, yeah. It was the best part about running for Nike, the best gear in the world, but it was also the worst part because we had this little little apartment and it's like we don't know where to put we do not send us anything else. Like we can't deal with it. We made some donation agencies really happy yeah. in California. Oh like I imagine there's some high school kids running around with some pretty sweet looking Nike gear. <laughs> so fly. Um but then at the at the top end. There are some contracts that usually will amount to 20 to 35K or so, um, plus bonuses that are great contracts. And I think there's a little bit more movement to that, but those deals are rare and usually from people that are like winning the biggest races or have massive social media followings. Um, And then even at the very, 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 very top level, there's probably um, a few deals that are even more, though, though, as I understand it, those deals are usually very heavily 
bonus induced as well that the athlete still needs to perform for them to really pay out like they might be able to. And I think the other thing about the tippy top in terms of like sponsorship deals in in trail running is that a lot of them are also skewed towards longer distances. And that makes sense because like Western States, UTMB, these are high profile races where brands are really like, they're really showcasing their athletes. And I think there's a lot less money that's flowing into shorter races like US mountain races or like, you know, the half marathon champs. And I think that's, I mean, sponsors should put their money where, you know, where the sponsorship deals are. And that makes sense to me. But I think it also in some sense creates this challenge for athletes because like sometimes it's not great to step up in distance for the sake of like longevity in sport or it creates this incentive where athletes have to race all the time. And that can also be challenging for longevity. Yeah. And it all feeds back into the validation model, right? Like some of the signing for a studio is that for that validation. Other parts is to open up doors for you that will let you prove yourself more. Um, And it all gets back to instead of structuring decisions based on how shoe sponsorships turn out, really structure decisions based on what is the most fun and exciting. And if that works out for a shoe sponsorship, it is freaking awesome. But if you have that be the goal, I've seen a ton of athletes come and go in the sport and burn themselves to a crisp, even when things go well, um, for something that in the end won't be the things that imprint onto their brains. It'll be something that might facilitate those experiences and memories, but it's not going to be the thing. So make sure we're not putting it up on the thing or uh, putting it up on uh, a pedestal as the thing that you're supposed to chase. And I think also know yourself as an athlete. Yeah. Like for me, I am a massive people pleaser in life. And if I overlap that with racing, I think it's very challenging for me. Like if I'm trying to people please a company yeah. at the same time as I'm choosing races, I think it creates an incentive structure that's just not super and healthy for me. People pleasing a company is exactly, that's such a beautiful way to put it. And I see this all the time in athletes. It's like, it's a company. So while there are great humans there, we love everyone we've ever worked with at Nike, Hoka, and, and Innovate, all these other places, and, and the other companies that we haven't run with but have worked with for our athletes, they're amazing humans, but they're still a company and they have profit structures and incentives that like, if they are a sucker, they will get run under, it's not good for them, right? Um, whereas they might in their individual capacity want to do things that would get them fired. Um, so not to like put that pressure on yourself to please this like, entity that isn't the individuals because the individuals that love you are going to love you and the people or entities that don't love you are just going to be conditional support anyway. And so perhaps not chasing that conditional support. And so love yourself, find a path of that is meaningful for you and don't sell out for things that uh, are less than your value. I was going to say one of my biggest, like most freeing moments in my running life was when I wasn't sponsored by a shoe company. And it was like the first day I could go out the door and run in whatever pair of shoe (laughs) I wanted to and whatever outfit I wanted to. And it was so great. I loved it. So I think like, but that comes like, you know, we had several years where we, we like felt like we had like the validation of having a pro contract. And so I think it might've helped with coaching. It might've helped with podcasting. I was going to say like, I think like some of that might've been fundamental to our growth and trajectory. And so I very much see both sides. But let me tell you, I love wearing the Nike Pegasus on roads and yeah. Speedgoat Evo on trails and being able to combine those <laughs> two together. And like, it's great. Actually, one more takeaway for people that might be relevant. So how do you actually get these or do this process? The the big contracts will come to you if you perform usually um, at the very, very, very top level. But even that, it's required sometimes to reach out. So that's kind of what we've been doing. So talk to people in the know, um, talk to your friends, others to try to get contact information because the people at these companies want to help if they can. And usually they'll be pretty direct with you about what they're able to do. Um, and so a lot of it is like who, you know, and it can create this process that can be a little bit tough, but, um, 
yeah, just know that like it's there, that is not where self-belief or validation will ever come from in a meaningful way. And you are enough just as you are, even if you're running in a hodgepodge of different types of shoe brands like we are now. Okay, so hard pivot to our gratitude for vulnerability. We've had a lot of gratitude this week, as we've been emphasizing throughout the episode. But I think for me, the biggest point of gratitude goes out to Cecily Strong. And Cecily Strong appeared on this week's uh, Saturday Night Live, and we actually watched it on Sunday. I think we very rarely watch Saturday Night Live on Saturday because <laughs> we go to bed so early that even on Mountain Time, we can't stay up for Saturday Night Live on Not Saturday. Not even close. I think we're usually asleep like three hours before it starts. Um, but so Cecily Strong was on Weekend Update, and she appeared as a character uh, Goober the Clown, and she was there to talk about clown abortions. And I think for me, the first 30 to 45 seconds of this, of what she was doing, I was just a little bit confused at first. She had, there was a lot of like clown stuff going on. Like she had a, a flower that was spitting water. And I was just kind of like, it took me a second to take it all in. And then you told me, and you said, Megan, she's talking about her own abortion. And that's when I like started watching this with just a sense of like awe and gratitude for the amount of vulnerability that she was having, but also layered on top of that, just a sense of like frustration that yeah. she had to go on and play a character of a clown to talk about this personal experience that shaped her life so fundamentally. And a lot of the times she was taking helium from the balloon yeah. um, because that's like what clowns do, but it was also distorting her voice. And she said with a voice that was distorted from helium, I know I wouldn't be a clown on TV here today if it weren't for the abortion I had the day before my 23rd birthday. Oof. And like, how powerful of a quote is that? And, you know, she's saying it from the standpoint of being a clown and with a, a voice filled with helium. Yeah. And everything she did on there was so powerful. She shared a few statistics. One is that one third of all clowns will have an abortion. Um, I chuckle at the clowns part, you know, even though uh, it's like pure satire, because it makes it something that almost is easier to talk about, even as that proves her point. Um, so one third of people, um, that's hundreds of millions of people in the country, um, as it relates to this podcast, thousands, perhaps tens of thousands in some cases um, of people that are probably listening have gone through this. And we just want to say you are so loved and you're so seen and enough just as you are. And another thing she talked about was a personal experience where you know, in the future. So clowns will be in their thirties and they'll all be around at a dinner party and they'll all be a few glasses of wine deep. And then they'll, someone will say, be confident enough to open up and say they've had an abortion. And then eight other people at the table will say, I have too, um, which makes sense if we're talking about these statistics. And, uh, you know, we just want to say you're loved and you're enough just as you are. Um, yeah. And I think also, too, we're talking about this now, but this has been something that has been going on for generations and generations yeah. and has been something that like women and families have been carrying the weight of for a long time. Yet we can't talk about yeah. that. And like we can't let people like let down the weights that they're carrying. And that's so challenging. And Cecily and had a quote and she said, clowns have been helping each other and their pregnancies since the caves. It's going to happen, so it ought to be safe, legal, and accessible, not back to the alley. The last thing anyone wants is a bunch of dead clowns in a dark alley. And there's comedy in there, there's satire in there, yeah. but also, wow, that hits you in the in the gut. Like, holy crap. Like, we just need a place in the world where we can talk about this and have a place of like love and understanding. Yeah. And so through coaching, um, I mean, actually, you as doctor and being in the hospital have probably like really seen this a lot. But then thinking about coaching, so many of our closest friends and athletes have gone through this process. We probably haven't even seen you know, all the abortions that have happened with athletes we've coached because there's the stigma around it. Um, but we've seen it so many different times. Sometimes it can even be things like IUDs that fail or things like that. Other times it's just the way of life. One third of all people. It's like, yes, you are so loved. Anything else that affects that many people, we're like, yes, this is your love. This is a universal human experience. So wherever you're at going through this, what 
you know, just know that you are seen in this process. And even if, you know, you don't have to share like Cecily or anything, but know it's okay to as well, especially if that takes a little bit of that weight off. I actually love that you brought up the idea about birth control methods and like our birth control methods aren't perfect. And here we are as like, and I think that's something that is like so important to realize is that like when we say something is like 99% effective, that means that one in 100 people will become pregnant. Yeah. So like, you know, if an IUD is 99% effective, one in 100 people will become pregnant. And that's actually like- Yeah, we've seen that a number of times. That's pretty significant. And we've seen that a number of times in coaching, which probably shows that the statistics on that might be a little bit off too. But even in other cases, it's a medical procedure. Like so many people are affected by this, including so many of the people that might be advocating against it in Texas um, have directly benefited from this, um, which is one of the the harshest parts of this whole discussion to me, and I think to everyone is that a lot of the politicians that you know help sign that bill, they're still able to get abortions, and they should be. We should all be able to get it because it's a medical procedure and it's part of being a human in a really complex world. Um, so just leave you with a little song lyric uh, from uh, I believe Trevor Hall, which is "I know you know we know it's time to put down what you are carrying." So if you're carrying anything on this. You're loved. You can put it down, talk to people, talk to therapists. And I think, yeah, I think Cecily highlights the idea that it's just like so complicated and hard to talk about it still, which it shouldn't be. And that wherever you stand on this, you are loved. You are awesome as you are. And that's just our, you know what I mean? We're just sending our love and vibes out there to the world. Yeah. And watch that sketch. It's amazing. So this is going to be the little bit of an awkward transition time where we're going to go to a topic that's far less important, um, but might be important to some people that are athletes, which is on fueling in short events in races. Um, and this is the question from M. You said to take gels in a half marathon on a recent episode. Why is that? Um, which that's a great question because half marathons, especially this athlete that was was messaging is doing them just over an hour, um, like hours, 10 minutes. Um, theoretically, your glycogen stores last plenty of time to get you through that event. And they do. But you see athletes fuel when they do high high intensity short races all the time. So where is that offset? What's going on? I think for us, our minds were open to this at the when we were watching the Olympics. So the short course mountain bike under an hour race, these athletes were fueling so much. I actually pointedly remember an example where an athlete was like, I don't know, maybe 800 meters away from the yeah. finish line, which in biking is not yeah. very long and immediately just took a, took a gel or something. Yeah. It was like a, a liquid, a liquid sort of fuel source. And I mean, was minutes away from That's the finish line. Wild. Yeah. That's Less so than wild. I mean, seconds. Yeah. 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 And so in the athletes that are setting world records in the half marathon, so athletes going under an hour they're fueling a ton during those events and, and also hydrating. And it's really fascinating because I think it challenges a lot of what we know about glycogen and glycogen burning, at least in the popular parlance. So there's a 2018 article in Nutrition Reviews that was on glycogen metabolism that really gets into some of the details here. And they overall summarize the idea of like, okay, like let's start at the basis. Like what is glycogen metabolism? So glycogen metabolism is essentially the idea that my, muscle glycogen breaks down during activity. And in that process of breaking down, it produces glucose that then allows the muscle cells to produce ATP. And that's like fundamental to the process of performance. Yeah. And so low-level activity uh, burns very little glycogen. This is what we know is like, you know, fat oxidation, lipid metabolism, all that good stuff. I mean, the people that are hacking their bodies through low-carb, high-fat are essentially trying to make sure that they're very rarely ever burning glycogen in long-distance events. And then on the flip side, there's high-intensity training, which can burn a stunning amount. So we'll often hear that, oh, well, maybe you can burn like 800 to 1,000 calories of glycogen, quote-unquote, per hour or whatever. But in practice, it can actually go up 
like hugely, um, particularly in short sprint type things, where some studies have shown that glycogen storage can go down by over 50% with just a few sprints. How wild is that? Well, I think it's instructive, one, from the standpoint of fueling, but also, two, from the standpoint of pacing. Yeah. I often tell athletes, like, in in races, like marathon races, especially even, like, longer ultra races, avoid really, really sharp accelerations. Yeah. Like, say you're trying to catch someone, like, do it very gradually. Yeah. Because, again, like, these, like, sharp sprints, these sharp accelerations can take a hit in, like, glycogen stores. Yeah, and avoid, that's why I said all athletes avoid exceeding lactate threshold early in events unless, like, that is part of your pacing strategy. Because as soon as you do that, you're starting to increase that burn rate at other times too. Um, but, and this is the question that gets, I think, or the point that gets back to the listener's question the most of all, is that even rinsing with your mouth with a carb drink, but not actually consuming it helps substantially. Uh, so there's a 2010 study in nutrition journal that said that this might be a central nervous system mediated action. Um, and the way they structure these studies is so freaking cool. So what they do is they have these mixtures that contain glucose, maltodextrin, or placebo. And these are all sweetened with artificial sweetener. So they taste the same to every yeah. participant. And so essentially what they're doing is they're looking at how the performance changes over one hour. And what they found was that the maltodextrin and glucose group actually improved performance over the placebo group by 6.4% in one hour, which is, that's like bonkers. Yeah. That's, they're, mean, not people... even, they're not even consuming it. So there must be some neuro nervous system action going on here that is really relevant. Um, I think it's still up in the air about whether we're even talking about you need to consume this stuff, though I think um, recent studies have shown that you do. Like It's much better to actually fuel rather than just rinse your mouth, though perhaps in the bike race we were seeing someone rinse their mouth, not exactly sure. Um, and here's a quote from one of those studies. It should be emphasized that even studies where liver glycogen stocks were available for the maintenance of energy during exercise, ergogenic benefits have been found. So in other words, you still have glycogen, but fueling on top of that can be key to maintaining performance, no matter how short the race is really, as soon as we get above you know 20 or 30 minutes. And that is wild. And I really like, I like the idea of thinking about this from the central nervous system. I think to me that intuitively makes the most sense for like, yeah. okay, like what's the causal mechanism that's underlying this? And I think actually, if you take a step back towards like evolutionary tendencies, yeah. it's like, well, if we are training in a depleted environment, like we would not, like, I feel like you would, you need, the brain needs these extra like glu glucose glycogen stores on yeah. board to be able to like perform that sprint to avoid dying yes yeah so maybe that's the maybe that's why mouth rinses actually work is it's a signal to your brain that we are in a resource-rich environment and you don't need to worry about dying on the planes over there but whatever the exact cause um every athlete that wants to compete to their maximum in those types of events will take something so uh, you know maybe not take the 70 milligram gel like i did that might send you to the porta potties right after the finish um but it's something to practice and it, it doesn't just apply to racing this also applies to hard training efforts where top performance matters consider bringing a gel along to have, you know, halfway through some of your harder workouts and things to harness this power, um, or sports drink would also be great in this instance. Um, using that in a strategic way can, you know, put little rocket boosters in your body that I think will really start to add up into adaptation over time. And if you're anything like me, I start to really look forward to that. Like, yeah. I feel like when you're in the middle of a workout, like anything that's novel or different, I get excited for it. <laughs> so I'm like, give me that gel. This is going to be fun. So I think I come with that Actually, approach too. I just remembered a story from after the race where, you know, so I'm trying, this is something that isn't natural for me. Megan has always been someone that like you give her an hour event. She'll take two gels sometimes in that period of time, um, for, for very intense races, but I'm less used to it. Perhaps I need to train my stomach more, or perhaps I just have a crappy stomach. So after the race, we stop at a gas station and there, or like a Walgreens or something. And there I get 
a big thing of Pepto-Bismol and a big thing of ginger ale. And we get back to the car and Megan's like, uh, David, you should probably have the Pepto-Bismol now. And I'm like, sure. And so I pour out a little bit and then just put that thing down and instead just start chugging the bottle like it's a game. I was like, stop, stop, stop. It's not made for those purposes. <laughs> but it worked really well. So not recommended at home to have half a bottle, but in this case, success. <laughs> Perhaps that needs to be a topic for another week. Um, okay. Do you want to move on to listener corner? Let's do it. I love listener corner. We have some really good ones this week. Just so grateful. I feel like our experience out on Mount Sunitas this morning, like primed our pumps. Like we're just yeah. so excited. We're just so grateful for it. And listeners. as always, some work all play at gmail.com for questions, like comments, anything. Um, and this one is from B. It's called Aging Like a Boss. Coach Roach, just read your The Uncertainty of Aging in Athletics article on Trail Runner. It was serendipitous and ironic timing. I turned 60 last June. I completed a four-hour trail race last Sunday, finished, but it confirmed how far my running performances and abilities have declined in just the last year. For a few years now, I have been physically and mentally preparing for the graceful degradation of aging, but I feel like the wheels have suddenly come off. Your article was very inspirational and pulled me back from the precipitous ledge of chronic depression. I have failed at acknowledging the shared reality of aging and the fact that it's happening all the time. I am facing the reality of a crisis that undercuts my happiness and athletic growth. I need to find, quote unquote, gratitude for what my body can do rather than regret for what it can't. Those are your quotes that resonate the loudest with me. Thank you for your words and boosting my self-esteem. I needed to step back and do some deep introspective soul searching now. The long-term age performance curve has suddenly taken a deep dive. And I'm having trouble hanging on, but your words will help me deal with it. Thanks, coach. Oh. That's so beautiful. Also, I feel like it ties in so well to our discussion. And my heart goes out to, to be in just like that experience. Yeah. I think it's a universal human experience that we're all thinking yeah. about. And, and that age curve is coming for all of us. But instead of being like, oh, we're falling down it, be like, oh, we're riding this fucking wave. Uh, so hell yeah, B, let's ride that freaking wave. Uh, and the last one is from C, and it's called Let's Fail. Uh, I love your podcast, and lately it seems like the episodes have really been what I needed. I have been struggling with negative, nagging high hamstring tendinopathy since before Western States, and a lot of pers personal stuff going to the race that just left me drained. My Western States was a struggle from the first climb, and even though I drew, enjoyed the people in the beautiful course, I had a tough race. I'd actually run in 2017 and finished, so this one will leave me with lots of questions. Then, of course, after, every podcast and article was a recap of Western States, and it felt like rubbing that salt right in the wound. I was feeling pretty down. But I've really heard your message of not letting failure be consuming because this is just how we explore our limits. And I love the idea of that wet food energy and the freedom that comes with being a noob at something. Uh, so that's the best. It's just embracing failure and putting yourself out there in the big wet food energy along the way. And sharing caring through it all. Just yeah. like Zoe, I freaking love it. We love you all. Thank you so much for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, uh, do whatever you do for podcasts. You are the best. Woohoo. Woo Bye.